I'm Tiana Headley, and you're listening to Soundbox, a Miscellany News production. For years, Poughkeepsie watched as the waves of renewal and reinvestment washed over the Hudson Valley, not yet reaching its shores. Like many other cities in the region, the hard-hit post-industrial city lost its stride in the 21st century as factories shuttered, jobs disappeared, and residents left in droves. Now, the once-forgotten city is blooming into a new age of development, investment, and economic growth. Tourists flock to the upstate city for the famous walkway over the Hudson. Cafes, breweries, restaurants, and art galleries line the avenues once filled with empty lots and vacant, dilapidated buildings. A nod to the region's long-standing reputation as a brew hub, an emergence into a foodie, arts, and culture destination. The trolley barn and the Poughkeepsie underwear factory are proof that in with the new can be a reimagining of the old. But even with this burst of development that grew from a slow trickle, the Poughkeepsie of today isn't fully what the city had in mind when it crafted its 1998 comprehensive plan. Comprehensive plans are roadmaps for development and policy in a city. And among its peers, Poughkeepsie's been running on the oldest in the region. As the city still struggles with vacant homes and affordable housing availability, all while marketing itself to outside young professionals, its new comprehensive plan can prioritize everyone looking to make Poughkeepsie home. This week, I'll be talking with Joshua Simons about Poughkeepsie's efforts to develop a new comprehensive plan amid the $1 billion in development underway in the city. Simons is the Senior Research Associate for the SUNY New Paltz Benjamin Center. He's also the author of How Poughkeepsie's Past Has Handcuffed Its Future, an analysis of how the city failed to live up to its 1998 comprehensive plan. Simons will break down his findings, how the city should move forward in building a new plan, and what current revitalization efforts mean for present and potential Poughkeepsie residents across the socioeconomic spectrum. Hi, Joshua. Hello. How are you doing today? Well, you know, another beautiful day in paradise. So can you give me an overview of what Poughkeepsie envisioned for itself based on its 1998 comprehensive plan? Well, I think the first thing to sort of realize is where Poughkeepsie was at in 1998, right? So it was in the, the wake of the IBM layoffs, the peak of the crack epidemic. The city uh, looked very different than it does today. Um, for instance, the uh, main street between Hamilton and Academy Street was, uh, or Market Street actually, was shut down as a part of a main mall, which was envisioned as an outside sort of shopping center that had become dilapidated and boarded up and basically it was a no man's land. And the comprehensive plan is sort of a shared vision of what the people of the city want the city to look like and how they can get there. So uh, through a bunch of different... Uh, a different groups and fact-finding and shareholder meetings, et cetera, they came up with this sort of plan. And the, the idea here, um, the overwhelming sort of thrust of it was that Poughkeepsie needed to do something to facilitate its development so that it was economically viable. The industry in the north side had died uh, largely because of the shutting down of the freight rails with the bridge uh, fire, the walkway of the Hudson Bridge used to be a freight rail bridge. It burnt down in 1974. So the idea here had a couple of focus areas. One focus area was the waterfront. Uh, Warius Park didn't really exist back then. People didn't have any access to the waterfront. 
The second area of focus was the Main Street Corridor and being able to facilitate commercial development there. And then the third area of focus was the North Side or the Cottage Street Industrial Park uh, area where they had envisioned um, a revitalization of the economy of that area uh, and basically um, a way to reuse the old industrial sector of the city. So the state of New York recommends that cities update their comprehensive plans every 10 years. Why is it important for cities to update their plans on a decade basis? And did this possibly affect Poughkeepsie's lag in critical redevelopment compared to its peers? Well, the the main reason, uh, okay, so comprehensive plans basically serve as a catalyst uh, for over um, an overhaul of the zoning code, right? And so the zoning code is the most powerful tool a city has to be able to actually focus development of the type and in the areas that they want it. The recommendation to up, update the comprehensive plan every 10 years isn't necessarily even to up, update it. It's to uh, examine to see if it needs to be updated. Because feasibly, in a 10-year period of time, the first comprehensive plan might have been so forward-thinking that it makes a good sense. But really, the, the overwhelming sort of idea here is that the world is not a static place. Things change. Things tend to change very quickly. And so what might have been a good idea or reality on the ground 10 years ago might not be today. And so taking a, a moment every 10 years to sort of pause and examine the comprehensive plan and so, see what needs to be updated and what needs to be overhauled. Has the shared vision changed? Does the roadmap still make sense? That's very important. Now, with regards to comparing Poughkeepsie to its peers, I don't think it's fair uh, to, to use the, the comprehensive plan as sort of the comparison there. There's so many various different factors that have gone into Poughkeepsie lagging in your words, uh, behind its its peers, not the least of which is, you know, areas like Beacon or Hudson have seen these renaissance sort of sort of booms, but it's because they're smaller, you know, it's because they're smaller, it's because the demographics of the place are different, and it's for a myriad of, of other reasons. I, the comprehensive lack of a co- updated comprehensive plan certainly didn't help anything, but I'm hesitant to actually attribute, you know, the sort of disparity in, in the development of the cities to the comprehensive plan. So by the end of your analysis, Poughkeepsie earned a score of 41%. And you note that this isn't necessarily terrible. And also that many of the plan's priorities are out of touch with the city's present priorities. However, there are some vital initiatives that the city never addressed or fully realized. Uh, can you discuss some, of those, some examples of those initiatives? So first and foremost, there's the zoning code. After the 1998 comprehensive plan uh, was was enacted, there was never an overhaul of the zoning code. So the we see over the past 22 years, the changes that have been made to the zoning code have been sort of piecemeal, you know, uh, here here and there, and by and large have been good, but not comprehensive, uh, not an overhaul, and not sort of integrated. And so you end up with these little patchwork sort of bubbles of, of, of policy and de- development instead of sort of a, a, an overhaul of, uh, of everything. It's in terms of like, so that would be the first one. The fact that the city never up, uh, did an overhaul of its zoning code sticks out as a really big sort of red flag. And, you know, in a lot of ways makes enacting other things within the zoning, uh, within the comprehensive plan very ha- hard. Right? So the, the Cottage Street Industrial Park 
never happened. You know, that was a really, really good idea for a variety of different reasons. One of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to attract a Home Depot or a Lowe's to that area, you know, to be able to utilize the, the space that they have there for that type of thing. It's too late for that. You know, the, the Lowe's and the Home Depots, they all moved in on the Route 9 corridor. Do you know why the Poughkeepsie was one of the first cities in the United States to get Verizon Fios? I do not. Okay. It's because... Poughkeepsie used to have two uh, central offices for their telephone service, one on South Hamilton and one on Haight Street, uh, which is the westbound arterial or eastbound arterial, rather. It also has an AT&T station on Ham- North Hamilton Street that, uh, that serves uh, as the part of the backbone, the fiber optic backbone that runs from New York City to Albany. So basically, north, south, east, and west, the city of Poughkeepsie already had a fiber optic background based on the telephone infrastructure that had been there. So it was very easy for them to roll out Fios. Part of the comprehensive plan was actually utilize that backbone in 1998, sort of at the birth of the commercial internet that we know, to be able to attract high-tech industry here for data centers and those sort of things. We also had a plethora of technically uh, skilled and experienced workers who had recently been laid off from IBM. So that, that was another thing that was an absolutely great idea that just absolutely, it never came to fruition. The, there's been a lot of development on the waterfront, but not, not sort of aligned with what the comprehensive plan uh, sort of wanted. Like the, the, the idea behind the comprehensive plan with the waterfront is that there'd be a harbor and promenade and those sort of things. Uh, we don't have a harbor. We don't have really a, a promenade. There has been a lot of work done at the waterfront though, and I don't want to you know, I don't want to minimize that. Warrior's Park is great, and the Cal Rock project looks like it's going to be really good. And, uh, you know, certainly the Children's Museum is, the, is good. But the development that has happened has been sort of, as is one problem, and that's that the train tracks sort of run, you know, run across, uh, separate it from the rest of the city. And so for where the walkway over the Hudson elevator is, for instance, allows people to get off the walkway and take the elevator down. But the area of Poughkeepsie and the businesses that they're going to there aren't connected to the rest of the city. In a lot of ways, it seems like since the arterials were put in and, you know, that sort of uh, area, there's been this thrust of, of, of people being able to go to or through Poughkeepsie without ever having to really be in Poughkeepsie. And I, I think that that's a sort of issue. The other thing is without the comprehensive plan being updated and without the zoning code, uh, you know, being overhauled, anytime that the, that the city planning board or the IDA sort of evaluates a project, uh, they're doing it in a bubble, right? So it's not, uh, it's not evaluated in terms of how it integrates with the comprehensive plan and how it interacts with the other sort of development uh, you know, going on in the city. It's sort of in its own little bubble, and, and, and that's not the best way to achieve sweeping overhaul or change. So you talked about this sort of piecemeal way they've been going about changing the zoning codes. The 1998 plan recommends that the Main Street function as a traditional downtown, a central business corridor, easy accessible to and navigable by pedestrians and vehicles. It says that any capital investments and zoning code amendments should reinforce this goal. Now, Recently, the city updated its zoning codes, um, specifically in February of last year, with the goal of turning the city 
the city's downtown corridor that was heavily trafficked um, into a pedestrian-friendly area with walkable shops and residential units. The updates also established the the Innovation District, which focuses on filling vacant properties and encouraging new development and economic activity. So the city looked into drafting new zoning codes as early as 2016. Even so, do you think these new zoning laws fulfill what the 1998 plan had in mind for its rezoning recommendations? Hmm. It's a lot to unpack. I think that the zoning code changes that have been done are in line with the spirit of what the uh, comprehensive plan recommends. I think that they're too localized to fulfill you know, the, the recommendations of the comprehensive plan. Furthermore, I think that it's been so much time that the, re- the zoning recommendations and the comprehensive plan are pretty outdated. You know, a lot has changed in 22 years. And one of the issues here is without that, we're, we're, we're basically basing, you know, the analysis here, the basis of comparison is a shared vision of the city from a generation ago. What's more is that our, the current zoning code in the city of Poughkeepsie operates under an urban planning paradigm from the 1930s to the 1960s, which is not necessarily in keeping you know, with sort of modern thought on urban planning and development. Now, the pedestrian-friendly sort of areas and, and focus is very much sort of in line with this idea of walkable cities, and I, I by and large think that that is a very good thing. But these things can't exist within a bubble. And let me just give you a for instance. Suppose somebody's going from out of town to the walkway over the Hudson. They decide they want to go shop or dine, you know, on Main Street. How do they get there? Well, in order to actually walk that, you need to try to traverse the arterial and the Washington Street sort of intersection, which is kind of a nightmare for pedestrians. You know, there's no good way, a comfortable way to simply walk from one place to the other. And so while the Main Street corridor and the sort of central commercial district that's there is going to be improving walkability, and I I don't know what's going on right now on the ground. There may be plans to sort of branch that out further. You still have this issue with the arterials creating islands. You know, it creates an island in the center there and actually getting you know, traversing the arterials there, it's difficult for pedestrians, you know, and because that that is difficult, you have other issues like parking in within the central business district and things along those lines, where it can be difficult at times to be able to find ready, easy parking. And what's more is you shouldn't necessarily need to drive into there and park if you're really only five blocks away over near the walkway of the Hudson. So, I think that the innovation district, for instance, is a, is a good idea. Uh, I just, I, it's not comprehensive. You know, there hasn't been zoning changes in the north side of the city where, where that Cottage Street Industrial Park was supposed to be. Well, it's very easy to get zoning variances within the city of Poughkeepsie because it wants to encourage that type of development. It also, there's been no infrastructure, you know, changes to be able to integrate those portions of the city. We don't have posted truck routes in the city of Poughkeepsie. You know, so actually moving tractor trailers through the city of Poughkeepsie is done. It's, it's not A, not easy, and B, there's no clear one way that it's supposed to happen. And so from a transportation standpoint, 
it's still insufficient. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the arterials because I'm not sure who exactly said this, but they're involved in the planning and development of the city. And they said that urban renewal has been one of the sins of this city that they're trying to rectify, trying to move forward. And it, it continues to come back up again and again when we're thinking about how can the city move forward? What can the city do in terms of the way it's been kind of cut in half by these arterials? Well, I'm very sympathetic to this. I actually um, regular, well, fairly re- prior to this, you know, COVID, I uh, fairly regularly gave a, a lecture called It Takes a Planner to Kill a City, uh, which was all about urban renewal in the city of Poughkeepsie. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that the period of urban renewal poured more money for public infrastructure into the city of Poughkeepsie than it will ever see again. And so just on a sheer like dollar to dollar basis, you know, it's going to be very, very difficult to rectify a lot of the problems. The arterials, there's the opportunity to create avenues out of them right? And so you sort of shrink the road down, you have turning lanes and that sort of things. You create medians, you plant trees, those sort of things. That comes with the cost of the fact that, you know, traffic is going to back up and people are going to look for alternative routes, which is, you know, has the potential to focus traffic through residential areas. There's no good, one good solution to it. I think making Market Street two-way is a very good idea. It's a small thing, but it would help a lot. There's the left-hand entrance exit Cloverleaf of Doom in the interchange between Route 9 and 4455. That is a nightmare. I suppose, you know, they, they could study to see if it could be turned into, you know, a giant uh, traffic circle or something along those lines um, to improve sight lines and, you know, the flow of traffic. There's not a good solution to this. Like, one of the big problems is that the uh, Mid-Hudson Bridge was one of the first bridges uh, across the Hudson. The Bear Mountain Bridge opened up the year before the the Mid-Hudson Bridge did in 1929. Mid-Hudson was in 1930. And at that time, it made a lot of sense to put the bridge at the foot of the city, right? And so the, the unlike the Newburgh Beacon Bridge or the Kingston Rhinecliff Bridge or, you know, really any of the other bridges, the Rip Van Winkle, which the bridges are outside of the city, uh, and attached to via a road network, the Mid-Hudson Bridge comes right into the foot of the city. Well, in 1930, you can imagine, you know, the automobile traffic was not really an issue. Uh, there were more, you know, horses and carriages on it than there were cars. And that's the, that's the only way, you know, for, for many miles to be able to get across the river, which is a major sort of lane of commuting. And so any solution you know, transportation solution has to take into account the fact that the bridge is going to focus traffic right into the heart of the city. Uh, It becomes very, very difficult. The uh, 4455 arterial is the one that gets a lot of press, but really the north-south arterial, the Route 9 corridor there, was the one that really, really split the city, destroyed a lot of neighborhoods, and and creates the the larger problems. So I'm sorry, I don't have... If I had a magic bullet for this one, I, I sure would share it and I'd be probably be hailed as a hero. But um, it's a very, very difficult problem to solve. And I guess the only thing I can say about it is it just needs to be solved little by little. 
Well, you know, those arterials really transformed the way that the city's housing landscape also looks as well. Speaking of housing, coexisting with the city's affordable and market rate housing shortage is its abandoned property problem. Now, there are roughly 300 vacant properties in the city. One of the priorities of the 1998 plan is acquiring vacant properties, renovating them, uh, putting them back on the market to attract new families and rehabilitate older neighborhoods. Hudson River Housing, a Poughkeepsie-based housing development nonprofit, has been at the forefront of this in the city. You state that the main hindrance for the city acquiring a lot of abandoned properties is its reliance on tax lien auctions, which prevents it from receiving settlement money from the state attorney general's office to fund a land bank. And for listeners, land banks focus on acquiring and redeveloping abandoned or tax delinquent properties for future use. In February, the city and county announced their plans for a joint land bank. So I think listeners would really appreciate an explanation of the tax lien system, how it's used in Poughkeepsie, and this alternative route the city took advantage of to uh, seek approval for a land bank. Okay, so the tax lien auction system is basically the method that the city uses to collect delinquent taxes. Uh, so here's how this... Well, okay, I'll start with the, the, what's called the in-rem process, which is the process in state law where mo- most municipalities and, all, uh, and most counties, uh, actually all counties outside of uh, New York City and Westchester, uh, utilize... And basically, it's your traditional foreclosure system, right? So you don't pay your taxes for a couple of years. The um, foreclosing jurisdiction, the municipality or the county or whatever, forecloses on the property. It goes to court. There's either a settlement of the taxes or the property is lost and acquired by the municipality or the government that had foreclosed on it. Uh, The title is cleared and then the property is typically auctioned off although the, the uh, government then has the option to do whatever it wants with it. So if it acquires it in that manner, it can build on it, it can auction it off. It, there's, you know, it's, it's, the city owns it. The tax lien auction system is a system whereby the city doesn't foreclose on the properties. It sells the tax liens. So the lien is put on the property when the taxes aren't paid. If the taxes aren't paid within a couple of years, that lien is sold at auction to private investors who are basically buying the debt and the right to collect 12% interest on that debt. If, I forget, I'm a little fuzzy on the time period, but within a certain, I think it's two years, if that debt's not settled and the, ta- the tax lien uh, is, is not settled, then the city gives the title to the private investor. So, One of the issues with this is that it's basically privatizing debt collection for the city and the city doesn't reap, uh, reap the revenue streams from like the interest on the debt, um, doesn't have any flexibility within, uh, you know, within, uh, the collections, uh, scheme of that. Um, and by and large tax liens, uh, and tax lien auctions have been used, um, in places like Washington, DC, uh, to be able to strip primarily poor minorities of their, their homes. 
this, in general, this is seen as a bad thing. The other problem with this is, is that in the enabling legislation for New York State uh, land banks, the qualifying jurisdictions to be able to have a land bank have to be foreclosing jurisdictions. Because of the tax lien auction system, Poughkeepsie is not a foreclosing jurisdiction because it doesn't foreclose on the properties. So my understanding, and I'm not I'm not super technical uh, into this, but my understanding here is see Dutchess County uses the in-rem process. And so by partnering with the county to have a joint land bank, the county is the foreclosing jurisdiction and therefore the foreclosing jurisdiction requirement for the enabling legislation of the land bank is met. You spoke a little bit about how the system greatly disadvantages many residents in the city and has disadvantaged many residents in the city. Could you go a bit more into who ends up having negative outcomes, to put it um, as an understatement, with this system, as you described in your report? Sure, sure. This falls in basically into two categories. It's people who have properties that they have no interest in maintaining or utilizing, and it's an easy way for them to rid themselves of problematic uh, properties. So suppose you have a you have a property, uh, say it's polluted, the building's falling apart. Uh, it would be incredibly expensive to renovate and use for anything, and you want to get out from under it. If you stop paying the taxes within four years, it'll be taken away from you, and that's pretty easy. The second group of people that this negative—I mean, I don't know that I'd necessarily classify that as a negative outcome for the people that are looking to get rid of the properties. But you do see a lot of properties sort of go through this churn where the tax lien is bought by one party, then within you know five years uh, it's back up on the lien auction and bought by another party, and they just sort of change hands without ever anything happening to it. So I'd say that's a negative outcome for the city, but not necessarily for the people. But um, who own the properties. And the second one, I mean, is predominantly the elderly, the poor, and the disadvantaged. A lot of times, what it, you know, people end up not paying the taxes because they can't financially uh, pay the taxes, or there's an underlying health issue where, you know, they're managing their own finances, but perhaps they have, you know, a medical problem that's making it difficult for them to sort of function. It might be a, a case where you know some somebody hadn't paid the taxes and then passed away, and then the children inherited, and they don't know what the situation is, and that sort of thing. You know, there's there's historically been problems with the notices uh, for these. Uh, you know that that the people owe the taxes, and, and those have actually they've they've done some work to make the sort of notice requirements be met better. But yeah, I mean. The the people that are most disadvantaged, you know, disadvantaged by the system are those that are the most vulnerable. Speaking of the most vulnerable members of our communities or of our community um, and their ability to maintain a roof over their head, the city seems to be attempting to balance producing affordable housing for low income residents while creating luxury housing and amenities for more well-off residents and even outsiders. Now, more in a, the past couple of years, more than 1,200 housing units have either been completed or under construction, one-third of which are expected to be affordable housing. Um, you state that luxury properties like the waterfront One Duchess Apartments are not 
part of the 1998 plan's priorities. While some might accuse the city of attempting to gentrify itself, are properties like these and affordable housing a crucial balancing act for the city's revitalization going forward? I don't know that the cost, both in terms of financial, but also the opportunity cost of utilizing the waterfront for luxury housing is, is, is a strictly necessary uh, for the revitalization. I think when we use broader terms like revitalization, I think it's important to ask the question, revitalization for whom, right? So for whom is this revitalization of luxury apartments on the waterfront separated from the city by both Route 9 and the train tracks? Who's that for? You know, what, what does that look like? How are they integrating into the city as a whole and becoming a part of it? Or are we creating bubbles down by the river whereby people can, once again, enjoy the city of Poughkeepsie without having to be in it? So I, I think that like the basis that, that this is necessary, uh, the luxury housing is necessary. Now, I'm not saying that housing isn't necessary because I think if you go on Craigslist and look at any of the rental ads, it's pretty uh, obvious what the market for housing looks like in the city of Poughkeepsie. I think that we see, we, the city needs to take a very careful look about, again, if you're, if you're taking you know, a luxury housing development down by the river and you're evaluating that, that proposal on the basis of it alone and not in terms of a sort of comprehensive plan of what, what a shared vision of the city looks like, the project may or may not, you know, may look good on its own. It may or may not look good, you know, when dovetailed into a, a sort of comprehensive plan. I, I think that the areas of most need within the city of Poughkeepsie are the areas that are least attended to, the north side of the city, you know, the Smith Street Corridor. Uh, you know, I, I think that... Uh, I don't necessarily know that luxury apartments down by the waterfront for either doctors working at the new medical center or commuters who are going to be utilizing the train station to go back and forth, you know, to the city or things along those lines really, really contributes to revitalization, you know? So at at that point, perhaps, you know, there's no, there's not huge amounts of social benefit, but then you might look at the tax revenue or something along those lines on the property when evaluating it. And maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Right. And I think that moving forward, when we're thinking about the kinds of uh, housing developments that the city approves in the future, one question that the public and the community really has to ask is who, as you stated, who are these properties meant to attract? Who are they really for? Who is the city catering to? Especially when thinking about, again, the vast need in housing, especially affordable housing in the city. Going along that tangent, one of the other areas you express the city should focus on is establishing um, preferences for mixed income and subsidized housing. Um, Hudson River Housing just moved folks into the Fallkill Commons at Rose Affordable Housing Project. And the organization is building a new mixed-income affordable housing project, Crandall Square, on the corner of Catherine and Mill Street. Um, One of the major differences between the two projects is their average median income or AMI requirements uh, for tenants. Uh, While Fallkill Commons 
income requirements are based on Poughkeepsie's AMI, Crandall Square's income brackets are according to Dutchess County's AMI, which is much higher than Poughkeepsie's. Some residents have accused the nonprofit of building a project that won't benefit the city's poorest residents. Um, one thing that I've heard is that there are people who are would be considered low income, but they just don't make often don't make that cutoff of being considered quote the most poor or the most disadvantaged, but that yet they are still struggling to get by, still struggling to get a roof over their head, still trying, still struggling to make ends meet. Um, but yeah, going back to my question. Um, do you think a project like this should attract um, people considered in that middle of being low income? Well, one of the things that I worked on a couple of years back was something the United Way did called the ALICE Project, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. And the, uh, it's sort of a metric for the working poor. And I think that there is a substantial portion of the population who falls above the federal poverty level, but you know, can't afford, you know, to live here because of the cost of living here is disproportionate to where the federal poverty level is set. And on its face, I don't think that, you know, um, creating affordable housing that caters to that demographic is necessarily a bad thing. I think that you need a comprehensive affordable housing strategy, right? And so like one of the worst things that was done in the city of Poughkeepsie was the concentration of poverty into the housing projects during the urban renewal period. So there's this project uh, that Rupco out of Kingston's uh, performing down in Newburgh. Um, it's called Newburgh Progress. And what it is, is it's almost like a scatter plot development um, project where rather than focus on creating affordable housing in one building or one structure in one place, it takes the, uh, it takes the focus of a neighborhood and it identifies uh, vacant and abandoned homes that are owned by the Newburgh Land Bank within that neighborhood, vacant lots that, uh, that smaller buildings can be built on, and um, historic properties uh, that can be um, rebuilt you know, using the historic uh, renovation guidelines. And rather than create 144 units in one building, they create 144 units in one neighborhood. Now, imagine being able to take, you know, like a four square block area and being able to target 15, 20, 30 properties in it, have some new building, also a lot of re adaptive reuse of old buildings, and being able to take one affordable housing plan uh, project and transform a neighborhood. So I think I don't, I don't have strong criticism. I mean, the criticisms against Crandall Square are, are correct. It's not going to cater to the city's poorest residents in the same way, you know, that the Fishkill Rose uh, project, or Falk Hill Commons project, rather, does. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I think that the argument can be made that, that I have a hard time, say, you know, categorizing any affordable, new affordable housing uh, as bad. Um, I think that there are a lot of innovative and interesting sort of... Uh, ways to go about achieving affordable housing that can be a lot more transformative um, than the, the way that we're going about it now. All right. So to close things out, given the current state of, this, of the city and projected development, um, what are some goals you think are 
a must for the new comprehensive plan. Okay, well, I'm hesitant to speak for the city, you know, as, as the comprehensive plan is meant to be a shared vision. But some of the things that I would recommend, you know, looking into is, well, first off, regardless of what the recommendations for the, for the zoning of the city are, I think the comp, uh, a zoning overhaul has to be conducted after the, the comprehensive plan. It makes no sense to create a comprehensive plan with zoning recommendations to be able to facilitate it and then not pass any of the zoning recommendations. The second thing, I mean, I think that there needs to be a strong focus on transportation. You know, I, I think that the city needs to incrementally move towards shifting the paradigm of people, how people move within, but mostly through the city. And I don't have a strong, a clear answer of what the best way to go about that is, but clearly the way that it's happening now simply serves to reinforce, you know, problems. I, I did a brief piece about you know, the way um, that the physical uh, sort of geography of the city and the infrastructure of the city uh, clearly reinforces sort of socioeconomic uh, boundaries within the city. Can you tell us the name of that piece? It's called uh, A City Divided. Um, you can find it on the uh, Benjamin Center blog, uh, bensonblog.com. Basically, uh, it looked at, at the way that the arterial highways uh, within the city sort of um, reinforce, you know, uh, all, all of the socioeconomic uh, and uh, demographic sort of boundaries. One of the ones that's kind of striking is the median income. And if you look at the, uh, the westbound arterial and north and south of, of it, you know, there's a very clear dividing line uh, within the median income where it's clearly lower uh, north of the, of the arterial than it is uh, south of the arterial. I'm so, I was sorry to cut you off. I just wanted you know re- people to be able to check that out to read more into yeah. the issue. But you were saying about the recommendations you have. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So so transportation, right? Um, the establishment of truck routes uh, would be a good thing. I mean, I think that there's an opportunity for sort of small um, artisanal industry and manufacturing to be something that could be attracted to the north side of the city. Uh, you know, right now you have these sort of small, almost boutique sort of manufacturing companies in places like Brooklyn that are being completely priced out of the market. You know, uh, there's, we have proximity to the city. We have the proximity to large markets whereby people can sell their, their goods. Um, and we have a lot of space where, where that could happen. Um, and so, you know, being able to focus on, on attracting that sort of uh, industry to the north side would go a long way. Um, I think taking a more neighborhood focus on sort of uh, development and progress within the city would be appropriate. The ship has is, is long since sailed on this, but I didn't understand why the walkway over the Hudson, it was the state that made the decision, but why the elevator was dropped where it was when it easily could have been uh, dropped in Mount Carmel Square, a place which is basically set up for for mixed use, it's commercial, you know, on the first floor and apartment buildings above and there's, you know, empty space there. Uh, I think that that was sort of an opportunity missed. But being able to, being able to take a neighborhood and say, you know, what, what do, what's the vision for this neighborhood, you know? Um, and particularly focusing on, on improving both the infrastructure and the housing stock uh, of the north side of the city, you know, for the people that live there. Um, 
you know, it's uh, it's very a very stark contrast. You know, Smith Street starkly contrasts with Hooker Avenue. Well, thank you so much, Joshua, for your time. Um, this has been Soundbox. Thank you for tuning in. 